Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. I am not a regular prophet, but I know you are in for a treat with our youth choir. And I really appreciate you guys singing and the way you have such great expressions and clean, clear voices. I am jealous, as our Sunday school class knows, that I cannot sing. I was singing today, and it, it wasn't even a joyful noise to the Lord. It was trials and tribulations. Um, just a couple of announcements. Downstairs, we have a free table that we're trying to move over to the fellowship hall to keep the area looking a little nicer. And Julia makes fantastic homemade cards. Um, I use them a lot because I'm cheap and I like beauty. The two are not mutually exclusive. But there are free cards and um, office supplies and crafty stuff in the fellowship hall so zip over there and, and check it out and you can see in the bulletin that we're having a crib shower starting next week so just be prepared for that
your worship folder, I put a vision for our children. And as I age, I increasingly think more about the next generation to follow and the beauty of these little ones and their voices and their care. And I really appreciate Amanda and Amber for your working with these children to teach them about our great God and Father. Indeed, he is immortal. Indeed, he is invisible. Indeed, he is only wise. And calling our children to look and to point to God is incredibly important for the future, not just of this body, but as a light to the nations. And so we want to engage with them and for them and on their behalf. And one of the things that we do is we do pray for our children on a regular basis. And one of the resources that we use to help facilitate that is this one that Catherine can go over with you called Big, Bold, Biblical Prayers. It's a good resource to learn how to pray. We want to do more, not that it isn't unimportant, when the kids hurt themselves, stub their toe, maybe have an illness, maybe even have a surgery. But what they really need to do is come to Christ. They need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to find life in him. It's mediated through our witness to them and to others, but it's also through the prayers that we give. We have a regular prayer time on a, um, on a regular basis where we assign various children to different people within the church to pray for them earnestly so that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved and to be sanctified and to live a life that would glorify God. If you want to get part of that ministry, you could do so. See my wife, Catherine, she'll help. She'll guide. This is not just for women to do, although mostly women do pray for that. We have a few men. And some are even disabled or listening in. They can participate in prayer. It is the prayer of the saints that is one of the key means by which God will accomplish his will. And so we pray. I know for my own children, I've prayed for them every single day. I pray for your children every single day, even those that may have wandered off a bit. We will pray till they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might flourish, not only in this life, but in the joy that awaits them, the joy that we sing about. I wrote this vision statement and put it in your worship folder it's not an official one of the church. It's something I just thought we would put together for us to think about and for you to pray, because I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in just a moment as a congregation. Amber will play something soft, if you will, to silent, to help just block out things that might distract us, because we want to focus on, and in particular, I'm calling the church to pray for the 
salvation of these little ones and then for them to continue and to flourish. The vision statement that I wrote that might help guide and give some clues on how to pray is simply this. And if you want to contribute to this and correct a few things or amend something, you can let me know. I'll be glad to hear from you. But this is the way I'm thinking about the vision for our children. And I say our, it's not just the parents alone. It is all of the body of Christ to pray for the next generation. That kids that are in all of our stewardship, yes, some have a greater responsibility, but all of us do by leading them to Christ. Our vision is that by God's sovereign grace, our children and youth will repent and believe as they joyfully confess Jesus as their Lord, that they will grow in a profound awe and honor and trust of God, seeking to treasure him in all aspects of life, that their hope will flourish in Christ alone as they continue in faithful discipleship, dedicated to living for the glory of God. Can you pray that for these little ones? And maybe you might want to even pray it for yourself. Take a moment now, and I will close this time a congregational prayer out by reading and praying part of a prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, Father, we pray indeed that. We come humbly before you, recognizing that you are the sovereign creator of all mankind. And only in you do we find redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And what incredible riches that are in you. And I pray, Father, that that will be the delight of our heart. Not externally, why we conform to various things that we are required to do, that we're responsible to do, that, that might be forced 
in some respects, but really from true faith. May we be strengthened in our inner being. Change our hearts, O oh God. Change our hearts to, through faith in Christ, that we might be those who would glorify your name in all we do. That we might recognize the, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, the steadfast love that is beyond our imagination. I, I pray, Father, that indeed, in particular for these little ones, that they might come to know the love of Christ. May they know it through our love of them. Through our prayers, use them instrumentally to accomplish your will. Father, I pray that you would save everyone. I pray for those who are struggling now as parents of children that may have wandered in a different direction than they had originally started them on. I pray the seeds of truth would blossom in their life. Yes, even in the difficult times and discouraging times and perhaps times of, of great tragedy, use those, Lord, to, to awaken them from their sin, to bring them back to a sovereign Savior. I pray that you would bring great flourishing in their life as they turn their heart to Christ. I pray that we would see the fruit of it and see many sons and daughters confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And we pray this because through your inspired word, you remind us that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so give us faith to truly believe and truly to pray to recognize that that will be accomplished according to the power at work within us. And to you be the glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Psalm 95.1 says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Take our hymn books and let's all stand together and let's sing unto the Lord this morning. Number 32, Come Christians Join to Sing.
98th, Come, Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We have all received grace after grace from his fullness. John 1, 16, number 98.
Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Good morning, church. I'm going to be reading you from Acts chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 36 and finish out through the end of the chapter, verse 52. You can find this scripture passage on page 922 of the Pew Bible. If you'd like to read along with me, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to be coming in at the conclusion of Paul's sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. Paul has just given has just given an excellent review of the Lord's redemptive work through the nation of Israel and culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's where I'm going to start now and also read to you the reaction from the hearers afterwards. This is the word of God. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that we would truly be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us and to do it with gentleness and respect. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you, through your mercy and grace, would pour out your Holy Spirit and bring many to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, I lift up 
the children of this congregation that they may do the same. Father, I lift up the offerings that are given today. I pray that they would be given from cheerful, willing hearts, and I pray that you would use them to glorify your name and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would have the coming of your kingdom in our hearts always, and I pray that this would spur us on to good works, to love, to the brotherhood, and to all others. I pray that we would be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word this hour. I pray that we would listen attentively, and I pray that you would bear fruit in our lives through the hearing and doing of it. I pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Secret Place by Dr. R.C. Sproul. Thank you, Amber. You can remain seated for a moment, and uh, we're going to be reading uh, Psalm 103, the first uh, 11 verses, and then we'll sing that here this morning. So if you want to take your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 103, we're going to spend a little time just examining these psalms that we're singing before we sing them. And uh, we'll sing Psalm 103, verses 1 through 11 today, and then we're going to sing it again on the 27th. So between now and then, you have an opportunity to meditate on that, to live it, and then we'll reconvene on the 27th and sing Psalm 103 again. But today we're going to look at just examining it, just understanding what we are singing. And um, if you would, let's, uh, let's um, uh, read Psalm 103 together out loud. The first 11 verses, and let's begin. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. And so Psalm 103, you know, we, we, uh, to, to come into 103, we're looking at Psalm 102, and the writer asks God for help, hoping for a better future. And so as he uh, moves into 103, we are celebrating the work of God as he forgives and acts on behalf of his people. David's attributed with Psalm 103, and he uses those verbs in verses 3 through 5, uh, that he has been forgiven, he has been healed, redeemed, crowned, satisfied, and renewed. And so those are personal testimonies of David, verses 3 through 5. And then as we move to 6 and 7, we see that, uh, that he turns his and shifts his focus to the nation of Israel. They've been oppressed greatly, uh, but God has always been with them. And uh, so God re has revealed to Moses, we see in verse 6 and 7, uh, his expectations for worship and for living, and he has provided other helpful guidelines. Uh, as we move into verses 8 through 10, David realizes that God is a forgiving God. Uh, the sins and iniquities of the people had at times resulted in his wrath, but it has been clear that God is slow to become angry and shows mercy to his people. And so God receives no satisfaction from punishing human sin. Uh, God's anger is not lasting because of his forgiveness. He desires for people to forsake their iniquities and their sin and to turn to him. And when we do that, he gladly removes sin as far as the east is from the west, as we'll see in a few weeks in verse 12. Um, so as we think about this psalm, as we live this psalm, let's celebrate the love of God his forgiveness, his mercy, and uh, remember this psalm over the next few weeks as you walk in your daily life. So let's stand together and let's pull out our inserts and we'll sing these first 11 verses of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, it is to the tune of God our Father, we adore thee.
may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Blake, for sharing that with us. Psalm 103. It's one of my favorites, and it's a delight to, to sing it together as a congregation. And think about God's amazing grace. And we're actually going to address that topic today in our exposition of Hebrews chapter 8. Now I invite you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 8. Now there are some degree in which I'd like to push on through the book of Hebrews, particularly here. We've been on this section for a few weeks and I guess we'll be here for a few more. We'll just see how it unfolds. There was one other aspect I, I wanted to add on last week, but I guess sometimes it doesn't pay to be in too big of a hurry. More than anything, I think we really want to emphasize the aspect of what is called the new covenant here in Hebrews chapter 8. It is a covenant of grace. The new covenant is the promise of grace with no mixture of works. It is grace and grace alone. A covenant, if you will, is an agreement, a contract, a declaration. And really the way I see these covenants as they're unfolding, really they are a communication of God's decree and specifically within this new covenant. It's a declaration, a divine declaration of what God will do. And specifically here, as we call this the new covenant, it is the covenant of redemption. Notice verse 6, if you're in Hebrews 8. Verse 6, it says, this is a better covenant because it is enacted on better promises. The better promise is that of redemption. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not a covenant of redemption. It was a covenant of works. It communicated what is good and what is right. But there's no redemptive quality in there because we're not good and we're not right. And as good as the law might be, we fail to keep it. And therefore, it condemns us, not redeems us. And what we need is for a better promise. Those better promises are essentially enumerated here in, if you look down in chapter 8 and verses 10 to verse 12, it is God's work. It is God's work of redemption. And this is why I would entitle this a covenant of, of grace. Unmerited favor is what we mean by grace. All of God. None of us. He says in verse 10, I will put my law, what? In their heart instead of written on stone like the old covenant. I will be their God. They, they won't have idols that they worship. They will worship me. I will teach them. And that's implied by saying they're not going to have to teach one another is where I'm getting that from. That's verse 
11. It isn't that they don't, we don't need to give information, certainly we do, but the significance of it. I can sit there and ex- try to explain all of this, but without the power of God and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you're going to get nothing. You're just talking to blank faces. And how does this significant come out? Oh, well, you've got this great orator. You, you have somebody who can really communicate that. No, no, that's not good enough. It, it's way too short. What you need is the grace of God to enlighten, to illuminate, to now, all of a sudden, everything is significant. It's meaningful. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit and one that I could not accomplish only God could do. And God does promise to do that in the new covenant. Notice verse 12. He says, God says, I'm going to be merciful. Merciful means he's not going to give us what we deserve. And that's every day. God is a merciful God. And then he's not going to remember, verse 12, the last part. I will not remember this. What? I will not remember. It isn't that God forgets anything. He can't. He's God. He knows all. It's the, the idea of remembering is he's not going to count it against you. He's not going to look it up and say, oh, I remember you did this. So Why? Because he's looking to Christ and his perfection in the new covenant. What a, what a beautiful portrayal of God's grace. This is God's grace alone. This is a promise. This is a promise to fulfill redemption through his work alone. By the way, let me just add, that is how it has always been accomplished. It isn't after all as if all of a sudden now the new covenant comes, the new covenant in Christ, and now people are saved by grace, but prior to that, they were saved by something else. No, this is simply the revelation of how God accomplishes it from the very start, from the very beginning. It is all of God, it's all of his grace, and now we know specifically why. It is fulfilled in time as Christ fulfills those symbols that points to his grace, that reality of it, but he is the lamb that is slain from the foundation of the world. It was always meant to be by grace and grace alone. It is only God that can bring about redemption. Only God can create life. And by the way, only God can sustain life. Our state in our rebellion against God manifested in Adam, and all in Adam in that sense, then puts us in a state in which we are dead in our trespasses and sin. It is God who raises the dead. We, we are said in other scriptures to be, to be bound by the chains of sin, illustrated in the bondage in which God led the people out of bondage. Guess who could get them out? God and God alone. And it is only God that can take the chains, the binding of sin away. It is only by his power that they can be broken This passage we read, beautiful passage, Psalm 103, and thanks for sharing that with us, Blake, and explaining part of it. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When you recognize the beauty of what that is communicating, that's the response. It's going to be in worship, blessing, and thanksgiving. To, to really see the significance of it. And I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would see that. And recognize it is, it is God who forgives your iniquity. It, it is God who heals all your diseases. He's not just talking about temporal disease. That is a result of the curse and the fall. Guess what? In Christ it's gone. Right? It, it, the d- disease, it, it is bigger than what we, what we might experience in this temporal life. He's talking about death, ultimately, where it all leads to. It is God who redeems our life from the pit. I like to say sometimes when people ask, I need to come up with something else more original, but people, acquaintances, I don't know, and I'll meet them out in places, how are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. I was in the pit. I'm not in the pit. I belong in the pit, but it is God who raised me out. And beyond that, not just to get you out of jail free, so to speak, but notice in that Psalm 103 that Blake read for us, it said, to crown you with glory and honor. Well, I don't deserve glory and honor, for sure. But that's what you get in Christ. His glory, His honor, which He grants to you. And how would you possibly get that? That is this word grace. And hence, this new covenant is a covenant of grace. Let's refresh our memory just by reading the text, and then we'll unpack what we can today. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 8. And remember, his argument here is to a group of Jews who are thinking about, at least, at the very least, adding some of these old covenant symbols to what they're doing. They've got Christ, but they're going to add a little bit more of the culture in which went on, but, Christ, but the preacher is going to emphasize Christ is better, so much better that the whatever else pales in comparison, whatever else is just an idol, whatever else is just works, what you need is grace. And that's where he leads this off at it, but as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. And then he explains, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach 
each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you'll give us insight in your holy word. Use it to cut quick to our souls. May you cut away the sin and things that would obscure our clear vision of the glory of your matchless grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Note the text here. If we jump down to verse 13. The first one is obsolete. He's talking about this temporary covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, their idea was, well, um, they had confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, but everybody else is worshiping on Saturday, and they've got all these rituals and things going. The temple was still in existence at the time. The beauty and the pageantry was there, and, and, and no doubt these folks were kind of meeting in some dark and difficult places. Their stuff wasn't quite as nice. In fact, they were getting a lot of persecution because of their commitment to Christ. It cost them financially in their jobs and cost them in their relationships with people within the society. You know, all the scientists said this. All the theologians said that. So it put them in a tough spot. And they thought, at the very least, either one, to abandon Christianity, and he gives them a lot of warnings throughout the preaching of Hebrews, as we've mentioned. Don't drift away. You're going to go away from the living God. And another aspect, even if they didn't completely apostatize or abandon the faith, another great danger, which we're addressing here to some degree, is they were just going to, well... I'll, I'll take Jesus, but I'm going to add a little bit of the culture, too. Th- that ought to be good. And, and I'll put in my part, and Christ has his part, and, and everything will be fine. It isn't. Notice here, specifically in, in their context, it said, it, it, the first one then, this Mosaic covenant, a covenant of works, is growing old, and ready to vanish away. This would occur in in time, this vanishing away. If you remember, and it would have been difficult for them, it was difficult for the apostle Peter. Remember we read in Acts chapter 10, where Peter was called then to go and to, to associate and to be with the Gentiles and to eat their food under the temp under the temporary old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that that was prohibited. And God told him in a vision specifically to go kill and eat. His response was not so, Lord. (laughs) He did that once directly to Jesus Christ, if you remember, and Christ's response to him was, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) It's demonic, that's the point, you know. It, it, because it's opposite what God had said, and therefore 
it, it is demonic. These ceremonies that were put in place had a point and a purpose, but they were ready to vanish away. They were becoming obsolete. The feasts and the Sabbaths, all of those would end, by the way, in a short order. This We don't know precisely the date of the book of Hebrews, but I, I assume it's somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., the temple, if you will, would have been destroyed in AD 70, so it was still going on. And so here this preacher is saying it's ready to vanish away. It's, it's going to be gone. You're not going to have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Why? You're not going to have a temple to do it in. They were required, the males were required to go to Jerusalem to these big feasts. Well, guess what? They, they're not happening anymore. They would be taken away. They're not to be done even in this day. You find that in Exodus chapter 23. In fact, I'll give you a text, Colossians chapter 2. This is addressed a lot in Scripture, but here's one that's very clear. If you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 2, we'll, we'll jump around a few different texts this morning. Paul would tell the church at Colossae in chapter 2, and beginning in verse 16, I've quoted this before, but here you can see it for yourself if you like. He says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Now, what's he talking about? The first covenant, if you will. The first one of Hebrews chapter 8. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant. The covenant of works. They, they were under judgment. In fact, if they violated that many of these laws that were put, put forward, including worshiping on Saturday, it was the death penalty under the ceremonial law. Now, he says, you're, you're not under that judgment anymore. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled it all. And even if you think you're fulfilling it, you're not doing it. You're failing. He says, these things, note here, are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ isn't that a beautiful wording? Shadow, substance. That's a good way to think about it. Adding the shadow to the substance, we, we use a term for that, and we call it legalism. It's the religion of human achievement. And I could be wrong, so you can correct me, but you think about it. That's all there is. There is either a divine accomplishment by Jesus Christ or human achievement. That's it. Those are the two sides. All of these religions, even the weird ones, the ones you don't know about, don't understand, guess what? They have included in it some form of human achievement. Some of them very little. And they think that might be better. The scripture's clear. The works that you have to do are absolutely perfect. And I've, I only know of one perfect person. 
His name is Jesus Christ, and I hope you know him. He fulfilled all righteousness. No one else does. No one else can. The law, John would say in John chapter 1, is given by Moses. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. And if you back up one verse, you'll hear, you'll hear about that grace. It is grace after grace after grace. It is greater than you could possibly know. This old covenant, again, it's not that it's bad. It's holy, just, and good. The problem is me. I'm not. But it is a covenant of works. If you want to see it, you can look in Deuteronomy 28. And I don't mind if you turn there because I want to show you something else. There's a couple chapters later if you're in Deuteronomy. But, but uh, we'll go back to Hebrews in a minute. Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28. This just gives you an essence of the idea of what I mean by a covenant of works. God promises to bless. It's conditioned on what they do. If you do this, then I will. That's the point. This is opposite of the new covenant, which just simply says, I will, I will, I will. Here, it's if you do this, then I will do that. Notice here, okay, the Lord says, verse Drop down to verse 13. I will make you the head, not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down. On what basis? See the condition? If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which, which I commanded you today, being careful to do them. And verse 14, if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today. How, how many of the words? Any. Of them, just even one. If you do that, then I'm going to do that. That's the point you can see there. Don't go to the right, to the left, or don't go after other gods to serve them. So that's what you shouldn't do. What you should you do? Positively, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do how many of his commandments? All of his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today. Then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You get the, what's in the balance here? It, it, it's just not temporal blessings. This is talking about life and death. You, you have to obey absolutely everything. And if you fail short on one thing, you're going to get not just one curse, but you're going to get them all. You want to be under that command? <laughs> that covenant, should I say? It's wholly just and good because God's not going to command something that's evil. It's beneficial. The problem is, I'm not faultless. So that puts you in a great demise and it put them under this great demise so 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 did they have any hope yeah 
They could look and see their failures and ask God for salvation. That's the whole point of the law. Anyway, it isn't to compare notes with other people and show how much better of a person you are or a Christian you are or a law keeper you are or you're not. It's to point you to Christ. That's the point. And in fact, within the Old Testament code, this Mosaic code, there there is... Glimpses of that that, that uh, may not be as clearly revealed in, in the New Testament, in the coming of Christ, in the New Covenant. But, but you can see it if you flip over to chapter 30 in Deuteronomy. And you can catch the idea here. Deuteronomy 30, and I'll look at verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in what I commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He'll have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he, he will take you. Notice God doing this. And then the Lord your God will bring you into that land your fathers possess that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Well, how is he going to accomplish that if they're disobedient, if they've broken the command of works? Well, here's the answer in verse 6. This is pointing to the grace of God even in the midst of their sin grace that's greater than their sin and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The circumcision was done externally to point to this very aspect of God changing the very heart and nature. That same terminology you get in the new covenant. Not not only you but your offspring so that you will then Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. Here's life contrasted by death. And, and how, even within this old covenant, would that come about? How would they live? Through ceremony, through ritual acts, which they were even required to do, many of them. But these were all symbols. These were all shadows. They pointed to the substance and the reality of Christ. It it, it was a call to recognize, although I could physically do all kinds of things, one thing I can't do is change my heart. This is God's grace. It's manifested right here. This essential feature, if you will, of the new covenant. Changing the heart changing the affections, 
changing the attitudes of the people which result in the change of actions. It's a change of heart. It's always been by God's grace. Always. Even then. Now we're reminded of it. Where God has promised to fulfill this. This image here in in the um, Decalogue that's mentioned about God accomplishing this. That promise that has been given by Jeremiah, even in the midst of their wickedness, that God would redeem them and bring them back out of captivity. By Ezekiel, who would point forward to a day in which God would cleanse them from their sin. He would create a new heart within them and have the Holy Spirit of God actually dwell with them. That's the the new covenant. That's the promise that is fulfilled in the death, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who is right now sitting on the throne of grace. He was made propitiation for our sin and is ever living to mediate between God and man. The new covenant is a better promise because the promise is to change the heart of man, and it has been fulfilled. Salvation doesn't come about by simply agreeing with the facts of a religious system. It doesn't come about by participating in various rituals. It's going to come about only one way, and whether you're under the old covenant or the new or any time between, It's going to come about by a change of heart by God's grace. A change of heart which is expressed in our true belief. In our mind. In our affections. In our actions. All of that changed. Paul would describe those that are under the bonds of sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, I'll just read it for you. You've heard it, I'm sure. Verse 6, verse 9 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, we know that. Don't be deceived. And he gives an example of what unrighteousness is. Several. Sexually immoral. Idolaters. Adulterers. Men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, a lot of people are in trouble. (laughs) And if we continue, if you didn't find yourself yet on that list, if you continued it on, you, you can put yourself in that category. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because the first term captures much more. Those are just examples that we know. But it's called the unrighteous, the not right before God. The good news, and such were some of you, past tense. That's how your life was characterized. You're not that anymore. Now, I know there are systems that work to try to help people through various uh, 
practices in their life to change them. And part of the way they deal with it is have yourself always identify that way. And, and I don't think it's biblical at all. That's not who you are. That's who you were. You know who you are? You're in Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here it is, the Spirit of God who accomplishes this changes the very heart of man. The idea of, of being washed is forgiven, cleansed. It's, it's done with. God isn't going to hold that back to your account. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart for God. You say, I'm not perfectly holy. I still do wrong. This is speaking of positionally who you actually are. Perfect before God. Called to be saints. Set apart. That's the idea of sanctification. It isn't some secondary work of grace. It is grace to sanctify you. And, it, and it, you should see some evidence in, in your life of that growing in that grace and knowledge of Christ. Justified. Is sufficient enough. That's where you're declared, you know, you go to court and they make a declaration, it's done. Now in this life we have appeals and you can go to another court if they'll hear it and then another and then finally the Supreme Court. Well, guess what? This court is above all. It's above the Supreme Court. Doesn't matter. They change their mind from time to time. God never does. That's the difference. When it's declared righteous, you're declared righteous. It's it. It's done. All of that by Christ, through the Spirit of God. That's the distinction here in the New Covenant. It's all of grace. With no mixture of works. Back to Hebrews 8 and verse 10. If you remember, the the same concept is given, expressed differently but it but it's essentially the same i'm going to put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts it's going to change your thoughts and your affections this is what god would do and that's a better covenant it's a better promise You can't mix the old with the new, if you will. But this is what most people want to do. You'll hear about God's grace, and then somehow, well, I need to do my part, and God does his part, and, and we'll all get it done. It's like providing some sort of electric assist. God doesn't need your assistance. And in fact, if you did, you'd only slow it down, if that's even a proper illustration. There's no merit in your works. It isn't, we're not suggesting, we'll not address that today, but I'm not suggesting at all that, uh, that uh, God doesn't um, 
change the heart into where you have a desire for obedience to the faith. I'll probably talk about that a little bit on Wednesday. But what I am saying is that your works, as good as they might be, are not good enough. And beyond that, if you really isolated and looked at them measured by the perfection that is in Christ, you'd find them to be woefully flawed. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 64, 6. I'll read it for you. We've all become like one who is unclean. He's talking about ceremonially unclean. It, it would not be acceptable. You'd have to throw it, throw it out. <clears throat> it's like spoiled product. All our righteous deeds are polluted, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away to judgment. This is all our righteous deeds, he says, are like a polluted garment. It isn't acceptable before God. That's what he's saying. It isn't acceptable ceremonially in their structure of the old covenant. And in actuality, our righteous disease, our deeds are diseased, if you will. They're dirty. They're never perfect. I mean... Everything I do, I think I'm doing the right thing, but it's always mixed with sin. I don't always perceive it. In fact, I rarely do. I have to ask my wife, and she reminds me. And that's helpful at times. The imagery is this. You've got oil all over your hands, and you go to pick up a clean cloth, And what's going to happen? It's going to get dirty. But it isn't just that you have him internally, I mean externally, it's that this pollution is internally. And so all your righteous deeds are always stained with a degree of sin. And the only hope is an absolute divine cleansing, a divine washing by God. That's what we call grace. So then to combine our filthiness with his holiness and righteousness would only bring about further corruption. The idea of combining our works with his work is not just a problem with this Jewish congregation. I would submit to you there's a doctrine of the devil that persists in the minds of sinful men. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. And I don't know how much time I have to finish this out, so I'll do the best I can. But I may step on a few toes here, but I do want you to look at the Scripture and think on these things and examine to see if there's any merit in it. I'd also say, just like this remember context, how this preacher is preaching to his audience that wants to adopt some aspects of the Old Covenant, and he's saying, no, don't do that, that there would be some in their midst that would turn out to be apostates, that would apostatize the faith, and he gives a warning of that. There are others who are just ignorant, and they need to learn. They need to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. They may actually truly be redeemed, 
but just not really fully understand what grace is. And you will understand it through the illumination of the Holy Spirit looking at his word. So let's look at his word. Galatians 1. Paul, talking to the church of Galatia, who was doing something similar, that is, they were kind of adding other stuff to the gospel of Christ. And he's astonished. Verse 6, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So their addition is, is thought in his term of not just a little wrong. This is warning of apostasy. You get the deserting, the idea? You're turning to a different gospel, a different good news. Not that there is another one. He makes that clear. There aren't two ways. There's only one. But there are some who trouble you and want to, and note this, distort the gospel of Christ. <coughs> then he goes on and makes it clear. It doesn't matter how great that person sounds or what authority it looks like they stand in. Because even if we, that would be an apostle, if apostle gets it wrong, or if a divine being from heaven, an angel, as it's mentioned here, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, in other words, that faith in which you stand, let him be accursed. Anathema is the word. It means condemned forever to hell. You said it before. So now I say it again. So this isn't a new message he's been giving, and he repeats it here in, the, in two verses. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Because it's not saving. That's the problem. The different gospel is the one in which our works are added to the grace of Christ. That's really what he's getting to. If you're redeemed, you're going to be redeemed by grace alone, by his work, and only his work. If you're in Galatians, you can flip over to chapter 2. And he confirms that in context here. He says, verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Same idea, isn't it? You're not justified by the law. You're judged by the law. That's his point. You go ahead and do all the works you want. You're going to fail. How are you going to be declared righteous? Through the righteous one, and that's the only way. So don't mix them. So we also have believed. That's, that's faith in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith, in Christ Jesus, and not by works of the law. And here it is, the phrase, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I gave you the reasons why. And this is why I think all religions and systems, and even those that are close to the truth, miss the mark by a mile when they emphasize that justification before God, that merit will somehow 
come by the mixture of your works and his. They don't mix. They're like oil and water. I was reading in a blatant example, and hope you can see it, from the Mormon church. Now, there was a time in which most of these cults decried Christianity and declared themselves to be different and special and unique. Today, the tendency is to try to see how close they can look like Christianity and followers of Christ, and I think that's demonic in ways to deceive. In fact, the, I won't listen to it, but I've heard that they, they have a great choir. <laughs> they say a lot of Christian words. They do a lot of good things, and if you measure their goodness, many of them, compared to my good goodness, I couldn't hold a candle to it. I'm really not all that good, quite frankly. I mean, they don't even drink coffee. That's why I'm not a Mormon. No, just joking. But you're not going to be saved by your goodness. You're going to be saved by Christ. One of their leaders quoting from their their false scriptures put it this way about salvation. Because if you tell them, you know, are you guys saved by grace? Sure, we're saved by grace. That's that's. If you go to talk to them, that's what they're going to say. Okay, well that sounds good. We are too. But here's what they'll say specifically if you listen closely, and I'll quote. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Good so far? Here's the, pro- here's the killer. After all we can do. So you do a lot. In their case, a whole lot. <laughs> and then God will look on that and say, eh, that's good enough, we'll take you. And Though many that you might talk to out there aren't necessarily Mormons and caught up in this false doctrine, but I think they have similar ideology because it comes from the same source. They think, oh, I'm a good person. So in the end, I'm not really worried about facing judgment because I know I'm pretty good. I've done a lot. And when God gets done with reviewing all that I've done and and you compare it to that guy over there, I'm good enough. No, you're not. You're condemned because the requirement is absolute perfection and you have no chance. Your works are not good enough. It's Christ and Christ alone. And here's where I'm ready to step on some of your friends' toes. And I don't mean to because I think you could be saved. Many people are and have to learn about uh, God's Word and truth and scripture and understand about grace and the fullness of which it is. And they can make mistakes. But there's many who would teach in more evangelical circles. They, they don't have all the, the, all the heresies that Mormons might have. But they teach this idea that, and for lack of better terms, this is a good theological term to hang on to, it's called synergism. And that is you contribute in some form or fashion to your salvation. 
And the way it's often communicated this way, even among our evangelicals, with churches that would have otherwise good orthodox concepts of God and, and most everything else, they'll give this idea here that God graciously gives the sinner a choice And it's up to the sinner to take that opportunity and make the right choice. If you think about that, isn't that adding works to grace? Ultimately, who's responsible then for salvation? Good decision makers. If it was left up to me, trust me, I don't make that good of decisions. And that distorts grace. The grace of the new covenant, as clearly expressed, the grace that has always been there from the very beginning is God's work. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was God who went out and made the sacrifice and covered their sin. They didn't figure out, oh, I wonder if I ought to put this on or not. God saves by grace. And grace alone. They, they've come up with some creative evangelicals, come up with some ideas about salvation and had this idea of the, it's a word that you might hear bandied about. It's called prevenient grace. It's not in Scripture. The idea is that, that God gives you a little bit of grace. This is, this is opposite of what the Mormons think. Mormons, Mormons and, and many secular people think, well, I do all this good, and God will look on the end and say that's good enough. You know, th- that's actually Islam, too, by the way. This, they just don't know at the end what kind of decision God's going to make. This is why this causes people to engage in all kinds of rituals and all kinds of practices and so forth because they're just trying to be good enough. Well, they're not. Many evangelicals will put it kind of the opposite way and say, well, God, God gives you a little bit of grace, enough for you to make a good decision. Think of it as a wake-up call. And then you can choose whether to go back to sleep. You hear that alarm and you, you hit it, and maybe it'll go off again. Maybe you'll sleep through it. But it's all on you. I've heard of the illustrations like this. Well, you're, you're out drowning in the ocean and, and somebody throws in a lifeline. There's this ship that comes by and that's great, but, but you better take it. You, you better latch a hold of it and if you do, you'll be saved. That, that's grace. That isn't grace. That's works. It's a wrong illustration because you're not just out there Somewhat helpless, you're dead. If anything, you might even be at the bottom. I don't know. These illustrations fail in many reports to, to, uh, to, to grasp the fullness of, of it. It only has certain aspects of it. A better illustration would be, yeah, they, they send a ship out, and there's this guy on it who dives to the very bottom of the ocean in an impossible task, you know, and, and by himself grabs you and brings you to the surface. 
And he doesn't give you CPR. He, he, he takes his very hands and cuts out that heart of stone and puts in a, a living heart. He said, who could do that? It's impossible. Now you understand what grace is. It's God who writes it on the heart. It only comes about through a supernatural work of God's divine grace. One last passage, and I promise I'll finish before tomorrow. Ephesians chapter 2. Just so that we can tie this in and be done. I agree that all men need to repent and believe. I wrote in our little vision statement for the children that we pray for that, for them to actually repent, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to believe. That is to have faith. That's what we mean by believe. That, was, that is what we must do. And when I preach... When I'm talking to somebody, I call them to do those very things. What we're saying about grace, that is what you need to do, but we're talking about with grace is how that comes about. It isn't going to come about through my ability in communicating. It's going to come about through the divine grace of God. And here you have this delineated to a great degree in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's walk through it. He first describes our condition as dead. Verse 1, chapter 2. And you were, this is the condition of those that are believers in Christ, you were at one time dead in trespasses and sins. That's how we have already characterized that up the point, right? That, that's the point. In which you once walked following the course of the world. By, by the way, I know that's a weird concept. I mean, a dead man walking. That's the point. No real life, but yet the walk means this is how you lived. Following the course of this world. In other words, you're just doing what everybody else does. But who's behind that? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is alive and well. It's within our culture. And guess what? It looks like an angel of light. It looks really good. But that's how we all once lived. Verse 3. And how is that described? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition of fallen man. By nature. So no wonder you do the things that you do and people do the things they do. They don't surprise me. They might irritate me at times. It might be just totally crazy, but why do they do that? Because that's their mind. That's their nature. And children of wrath, that means subject to judgment, condemned already. So what's going to provide the rescue. Here it is in verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why. You see, it's all God. 
God who is rich, that is abundant. Love is, can be described as grace and mercy. Mercy not giving us what we, des- what we actually deserve. Grace in giving us what we do not. And how does that happen? By God. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There it is. My illustration is not perfect. It's kind of weird. But this is beautiful. And just hold on to those terms. That he made us alive. And the together part is the union with Christ. You aren't alive apart from Christ, by the way. Okay? That's the only way you'll be made alive. And that is accomplished by grace. Raised us up, verse 6, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the state of the believer. And this is why I say, don't say that's who I am, characterized as an unbeliever. No, who am I? I'm alive in Christ. And I'm seated with him in the heavenly places. Didn't Hebrews begin that way? When Christ ascended into the heavens, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. This is all what God does. But why does God do this? Why did God save a wretch like you and me? It's real simple. And that's the next verse. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's it. We call this the glory. What glory? Mercy, forgiveness, grace. And it goes on and on and on. It, in fact, it, it's so much so that it's, he describes it here as immeasurable. Immeasurable riches of his grace. Whatever you think about grace, even at this moment, it isn't great enough. It's greater than you would know. And it is so that you would recognize this and delight in it and praise him for it. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And you say, well, there it is. Uh, I'm saved by grace, but, but it's through my faith. You need to read on. It's not of your own doing. I don't think we can be any more clear than that. You must believe and you must have faith. So how in the world are you going to believe? How did dead men come alive? By grace. Grace is a word that just simply, another way to think of it is simply gift. So why would you have faith in the first place? Because it is a gift of God, and that's what he says. It is the gift of God. And note this, verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have nothing to boast in. It's not of your own doing. It is, it is God's gift. It is his grace. When God regenerates the sinner, he gives them a new heart. That new heart is now alive, and that new heart responds in repentance and faith. It is real repentance. It is real faith, but it didn't originate in your own doing. This is God's 
supernatural work. That's the best way I can explain it. You examine the text and see for yourself. If anything, I think we should end with that and recognize that his immeasurable riches of his grace and praise his holy name. Let us pray. Father, I do praise you for your amazing grace to rescue us from the condition in which we once were. I pray that we would continually redound to the glory of your grace and call others to see the fullness of your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment to think on these things. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you. Thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy, your kindness, and your faithfulness that endures to all generations. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Amber, you're right. We can't end uh, without singing Amazing Grace. I actually thought about doing, and that's 104 in your hymn books if you want to turn. Is that right? Okay, I got something right today. There's so many good hymns that speak of God's grace, and I hope you're reminded of that as we sing together um, the, the next hymn over. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Man, it, whatever you think, it's greater. So let's stand together and sing about how amazing God's grace is. 104 in your hymn books if we need it. First and the second. Father, we...
just ask you this morning to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts now, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell on us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatsoever we do in word or deed or everything, <clears throat> do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.